I believe a combination immunotherapy approach for glioblastoma will be curative. I believe the ingredients that mostly exist today, and it's just a matter of getting big companies to work together and getting the funding together. And that, that's the ultimate dream of my nonprofit is to be able to, to sort of bring that to bear and sponsor a trial with these different players. It's just a matter of time. I believe in the next five years, we'll see a lot of breakthroughs with immunotherapies, hopefully with some other approaches that are coming up, as well as the one that I've been a fan of for the past five years. So again, like I've known about this approach for five years and there's, I can't do anything about it. I don't have the funding to do it or the manpower. Welcome to Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories with GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Welcome back to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. This week, we're joined by John Carbonell, MD, PhD, who is considered the brain surgery dropout across social media. He left neurosurgery training to invent a new drug for brain cancer through his first startup, Oncosynergy. The drug OS2966 is now in a phase one clinical trial at the Moffitt Cancer Center for recurrent high-grade gliomas and glioblastomas. In 2020, he decided to launch a biotech company called Brazen Bio, which is hoping to become the Y Combinator of biotech and is considered an ecosystem to help scientists become CEOs. He is also the co-founder of the 501c3 nonprofit Cure Glioblastoma, whose goals are to promote awareness and to build solutions to defeat brain cancer. Join us on this episode as we discuss his past, all about his drug, his nonprofit, and much more. Without further ado, Sean Carbonell. Sean Carbonell, welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We are so excited to have you and talk about your past experience, what you're currently doing, and what the future holds for you and biotech and so much more. So welcome. Thanks so much, Amber. Thanks for having me. Love for our listeners to know, can you share a bit about your background? What's led you to the GBM space? We'd love to hear you know, where you started and how you've gotten here. Sure. Long story, I'll try to encapsulate it. But essentially, I started off wanting to become a neurosurgeon in undergraduate, so it's pre-med. And I was fortunate, very fortunate to meet some very influential mentors, Sean Grady, who was former chair of UPenn, as well as the chairman of neurosurgery at University of Washington. Sean Grady took me under his wing in his lab and basically mentored me from the age of 19. I started going to neurosurgery grand round conferences in the hospital. And uh, I was welcome there. It was great. And so that's how I got steeped in neurosurgery. But they made me realize that I can have bigger impact than just operating. They introduced me to the concept of the academic neurosurgeon who does research as well as practice medicine. And so that inspired me to do the MD-PhD, 
the MD-PhD program. So I have an MD and I have a PhD in neuroscience. That fueled my interest in the research so much that I actually postponed residency training after I graduated and decided to spend an extra year in Oxford to do a postdoc. That went really well, and it ended up being three years of a postdoc at Oxford. I discovered a new molecule that's a potential drug target for GBM and other brain cancers, and it sort of derailed my entire (laughs) career trajectory. But long story short, I was trained to be a neurosurgeon. I decided to leave neurosurgery training in 2009 so that I could pursue a new drug for GBM, and I did that through a startup called Oncosynergy. Amazing. And so for those who don't know, I mean, including myself, how do you discover a molecule? Were you focusing on something brain-related and it like popped up? How does that work? That's a great question. It was a little bit of luck and a little bit of bias, which I think both those things play a big role in science. And so the molecule, I didn't discover the molecule. I discovered the molecule's function in brain cancer. And so the funny thing is, One of my PhD advisors at University of Virginia, where I did my MD-PhD, he actually discovered the molecule. (laughs) I didn't study it while I was working with him, but I was aware of it. That's why he was famous. He discovered this molecule, which became this entire class of molecules with dozens of different receptors. And so it was a very fundamental cell biology target. So that was my bias. Now, when I went to Oxford, I was an outsider. So I did my PhD in neuroscience. I focused on glial cells with the intention of studying normal glial cells so that I could later study the monster of glioblastoma. And so I went into Oxford studying brain cancer with none of the biases of the field, which is perfect. So I approached it from a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up. So I was open to all possibilities and just started observing tissues. And yeah, basically by analyzing human tissues as well as animal tissues, I started to come up with these hypotheses. And it looked like these cells were doing something that might involve the molecule that my mentor had discovered. And just with a few experiments, I, I sort of verified that. And so, yeah, it was just a lot of luck and a lot of open-mindedness in exploration. That's so cool. And you mentioned that you were you know, studying neurology and neuroscience. Is there a particular thing that made you interested in glioblastoma in particular? Because the following work that you've done has all been GBM-focused. So what led you to initially become interested in the topic. Exactly. Well, it's, it's related to, you know, why I postponed residency to study at Oxford. I wanted to be the best academic neurosurgeon in the world. I was pretty precocious back then. So like, at the age of 19, sitting in neurosurgery grand rounds around all these neurosurgeons and looking at patients, this was in the mid-90s, mind you, there were no treatments approved for glioblastoma at that time. Uh, there's clinical trials. But I kept seeing these patients with glioblastoma, poor outcomes. I decided one of those Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. that I would dedicate my life to studying glioblastoma. That's so interesting. Love that. So from there, you led to become a co-founder of Oncosynergy. Would love to hear more about that because that was your first large sole project with glioblastoma. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So I was fortunate when I made the discovery, you know, hit the news. It was in BBC News and Nature Neuroscience picked it up as well in their print edition. We had some attention. And so I had multiple options, which I was very fortunate to have. Oxford wanted to hire me on as a professor, which would have meant letting go of the neurosurgery and clinical aspect. I had matched in neurosurgery at Cedars-Sinai. And then I also was thinking about just 
leaving all of it and starting a biotech company and doing it that way. So I didn't have much time to decide. So I basically chose what I felt was the best thing, which was to do neurosurgery at Cedar sinai because the chairman there actually, great guy, uh, Keith Black's still there. He offered me basically a faculty package. So I'd be an, an intern in neurosurgery, but I'd also have half of his lab, a quarter million dollar startup fund, just like any other faculty member. And I'd be able to do my research as well as his train in neurosurgery. That didn't work out, of course, because I was working 100 hours a week in clinic and I didn't have the support of other faculty members to, you know, sort of protect my time for the lab. And so I got frustrated and, you know, I realized at that point that was the next sort of evolution of my career. My career has always been about how can I have the biggest impact with the time I have. And so it went from neurosurgery to academic neurosurgery. Here now I've discovered a new molecule that we can target for brain cancer. If I developed a drug against that molecule, I can impact way more patients than I could with my own two hands as a neurosurgeon, even an academic neurosurgeon. So that was a simple calculus for me. It was the hardest decision in my life, don't get me wrong, but that's why I decided to leave the neurosurgery residency and start a biotech company in order to do this. It was incredibly naive, and that was actually an asset because if I knew how hard it was going to be, I, I probably wouldn't have done it. But essentially, back then, 10 years ago, there were no resources here in LA. And so I had to move up to San Francisco, get a second postdoc at UCSF, try to do some of the groundwork there, and then spin it out. And I got really fortunate. We were able to uh, raise some money from our, our co-founder's family, and we were off to the races. So we were able to develop the drug through UCSF as a spin out. I was able to subsequently raise $20 million from a group of angel investors. I never quite cracked the VC community, which is frustrating, but basically bootstrapped this therapeutic from an idea in my head. And now it's in phase one clinical trial at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. And it's been in, and they've enrolled, I believe, well, I don't know if I can say this, but they've enrolled several patients in that trial already, which is amazing. Right. No, it's absolutely incredible. So you decided to create your own biotech company and was called Onco Synergy. How did the conception of your drug start and why did you choose Moffitt to lead this trial? Right. That's a 10-year gap between okay. the drug design <laughs> and the trial. But yeah, so I mean, UCSF allowed me to test the hypothesis because, you know, when I quit residency, I didn't have a molecule, right? I had an idea. <laughs> and so like I was completely crazy to do that, but thankfully it sort of worked out. I was able to use the resources at UCSF to develop the initial antibody and then go from there. You know, it is just a matter of raising the capital to get it through sort of the proof of concept, early manufacturing, all that stuff that is the bio, biotech industry, which is very expensive, to regulatory, to clinical trial. So that was, like I said, a seven-year process to get an idea to a manufactured drug in a vial. Now, we chose Moffitt strategically because of contacts. It's all about network. It's all about people, of course. And we, Anne-Marie, my co-founder at Onco Synergy, was originally training for neurosurgery at Cleveland Clinic. And there, one of her closest mentors was Michael Vogelbaum, MD-PhD, also a product of the UVA MD-PhD program, which is great. He then became the chair at Moffitt. And so, you know, he was a natural person to reach out to. And it goes beyond that. He actually invented a new device for delivering large molecules like an antibody like ours directly into a tumor, which is what we needed. We have a large molecule. You can't just put it in the blood and expect it to distribute in the brain properly. So 
the approach of the trial is to directly inject it into the tumor under MRI guidance. And he happened to invent, invent a device specifically for that. And so those are the reasons why we chose uh, Moffitt as well as they have. Only a few sites have this, but they have an FDA office on site. Oh, that's incredible. I didn't know that. And so after that, you began clinical trial, and which it's still in phase one. Do you have any idea of the next steps for that? Is there a lot more patients that are required to take it to phase two? What does the timeline look for the, the drug that you created? Right. I've since stepped back as CEO of the company. I'm no longer an executive of the company. I'm still consulting on the scientific side, of course. Anne-Marie is now leading the company. And so she's the CEO. She's setting out that roadmap. Some of that I don't think I have the freedom to speak about because it's currently being decided. But obviously, pandemic, COVID had a big impact. It delayed the trial by a year. But fortunately, they were able to enroll the first patient in March of 2021. It's all on the clinicaltrials.gov, but you know we're looking for 10 to a dozen patients for phase one in order to move on to the next step. So enrollment is ongoing, and I believe we're opening up more sites in order That's to That's amazing. That. And just so for those who don't know, what do the different phases of clinical trials look like? Obviously, you know, there's conception, and then phase one is the first opportunity for humans to be able to use said drug or work with certain trial, but how does it proceed to step two and step three? Sure, yeah. So phase one trials is your safety study. So it's just, you know, is this safe and tolerated by humans? It also is an opportunity to figure out dosing because, again, that's the first time a drug is ever going to be in a human. And so that's part of the trial design. We start at a low amount and then we can ramp it up as depending on how patients do. That's the first trial. And it is possible to get some sort of signals as far as drug activity and We've designed the trial in order to do that. I can't speak on that, uh, but those are built into the trial design, which is amazing. And it was all all designed by Anne-Marie, actually. So phase two trials are sort of an early look at efficacy. Does this drug work? And so it's in a larger number of patients. For glioblastoma, don't quote me, but I believe, you know, 20 to 40 patients is typical for a phase two. And then, yeah, you just see whether there is a difference between treated and untreated or the control group. And then phase three is just a larger scale version of that where you now move into hundreds of patients and multiple centers. Although there are ways of doing it faster with fewer patients. Well, thank you for explaining. I think that's super helpful for everyone listening. Back to the creation of OncoSynergy, you left and you went on to create Cure Glioblastoma, which is your nonprofit organization. Would love to hear about the goal behind it. I know you work with Barbie Blank and you have an incredible advisory team and you have a great community. I see you're wearing the hoodie, even though no one can. You guys have created some awesome merch (laughs) and that's how we connected actually. So I'd love for everyone else to hear more about, you know, what was the vision behind creating your nonprofit and where it's been going? Yeah. So, you know, I had been working at OncoSynergy for nine years at that point by the time I left. And, And frankly, I was burned out. And so I needed that time to recover. But, you know, what I wanted to do What I was frustrated by in the drug development process is that it took nine years, right? And we still hadn't brought it to patients until a year later. The whole point of the nonprofit was to try to have a meaningful impact for patients sooner. And I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time, but I knew I wanted to try. Just just like starting OncoSynergy, I had no idea what developing a drug meant. I had no industry connections. I'd never built a drug before from an idea to a real product. 
that was the initial impetus. It happened all pretty suddenly. You know, Barbie's father died of glioblastoma in February, early, early 2018, I believe. We had connected through Instagram, and I'd been talking to her about this idea I had for a nonprofit because I was sort of grooming the staff in order to prepare them for me leaving as CEO and putting Anne-Marie as CEO. And so when I left in, in August of 2019 now, I moved to California and Barbie and I founded Cure Glioblastoma. The original thought was, you know, we'd use her celebrity status as well as, you know, contacts to friends. You know, we know Maria Menunos at all, all in the GBM community and family. Didn't try to put together a big gala event to raise money for our initiatives. Of course, COVID pandemic happened. happened. <laughs> yeah, same uh, for us too. <laughs> exactly. Everyone, I mean, it's the worst time to start a nonprofit. Thankfully, you know, we got 501c3 status before the pandemic hit, but then we were not able to, to raise money initially. Right. So dreams dashed. But yeah, so that was the original idea. And so, the, I mean, the whole concept is, you know, there are so many organizations out there and they're great and they're doing great things from, you know, paying for patient expenses to awareness like yourselves. You guys are doing an awesome job building community and, and creating Thank awareness you. online. I love it. And so what we wanted to do is leverage our unique talents, which is basically me, right? I'm an MD-PhD scientist who invented a cancer drug for glioblastoma. I know the right. entire process. And so we wanted to fund my further research on that, as well as, you know, another thing that I saw as a trainee was not enough support as a trainee. So there's two things we're really focusing on right now because we're sort of strapped with, for cash, but, you know, the research in the lab, as well as funding tomorrow's neuro-oncology leaders. And so we're about to announce some scholarship programs. That's amazing. I was just going to ask, I mean, how are you finding the next graduating class per se, that's going to be a part of your team. Yeah. They come to me uh, often. Oh, amazing. It's amazing. This is the power of social media, right? And you, you know this as well. But, you know, at Alka Synergy, we brought in interns based on DMs. You know, they DM'd us and then we interviewed them and they ended up being interns. And that's actually how I met Barbie as well, of course. And so it's really powerful. So that's how we met too. That is how we met. Yeah, yeah. Every <laughs> single person that I've met through the organization 92% and you know math is not my strong suit and I'm just you know <laughs> ballparking here but sure 92% has been through DMs and I think it's so amazing how incredible social media is that you can connect with literally anyone all around the world absolutely which is why I'm sad that I'm in Instagram jail right now but yes <laughs> hopefully by the time that episode's released you will be long gone exactly Instagram handcuffs <laughs> fast forward you created the nonprofit organization and then during pandemic, you created Brazen Bio, your new biotech company. Let's hear about that. Yeah. So the concept of Brazen Bio is, again, trying to increase the impact that I can have with my time. The original thought was developing a new drug is hard. <laughs> you know, startups are hard. Biotech is hard. Biotech startups are the hardest. And so there's a lot of technology out there, a lot of scientists who could be founders just like me, but don't know where to start, don't have the support maybe aren't in the right place and don't know the right people. And so I wanted to sort of facilitate that for brain cancer. And this was originally going to be an accelerator through cure glioblastoma. I quickly realized, you know, that there weren't enough companies at the time in order to hit scale. And so I realized I'd have to make it broader and include basically all biotech and therapeutics with the understanding that just like OS2966, the drug I invented, 
drugs that are developed for breast cancer or other cancers could be applied to glioblastoma. And so with that broader lens, we launched Brazen Bio as a for-profit out of the nonprofit. That is a completely separate entity. It's partially owned by the nonprofit, but it's basically an accelerator for new scientists to get, get their discoveries out of the lab and into the real world to benefit patients. And so there's multiple entities under that umbrella. We have a media and events company, which is Brazen Bio. We have a venture capital fund now, which is about to close our first round so we can start investing. Congratulations. So it's still early days, but really exciting. We already had our first batch go through and, you know, one already got VC funding like in the middle of the batch. And then the other one just got a Y Combinator interview. Oh, that's incredible. Which is this week, which is amazing. Yeah. And I'm actually talking to him after you. Awesome. We need to add like the clapping sound effect here. That is a, that's really (laughs) incredible. No, it's awesome. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the conversation. For those who don't necessarily understand what you just said, would you say that Brazen is sort of a we work type of situation for different upcoming researchers? Like where it's essentially it's like a space where everyone can kind of come together, has the opportunity to work on their development, and it kind of goes through you. Yeah, so it, it's hard to explain for people who don't know biotech accelerators in general uh, and tech and startups. But what I can say is I created the program that I wish I had in 2009 when I was starting Oncosynergy, right? So I needed lab space. I didn't have it because I couldn't find funding and they didn't have the WeWork lab spaces they have today. So what we offer is basically we'll give you funding. We give you a lab space. We have a lab in Torrance, which is right next door to our nonprofit lab as well. You have a free house to live in here in beautiful Redondo Beach. It's the first biotech launch house called Brazen House. We do a lot of programmatic activities for teaching. We bring in experienced founders to have intimate private dinner parties with them, to learn from people with battle scars. We do office hours one-on-one, things like that. So yeah, we really nurture these scientists and try to create them as scientist CEOs. That's incredible. That's so cool. I, I've been you know, talking to a lot of different biotech companies just through the nonprofit. And I'm just like, oh. I wish I had a biotech company. It's so exciting to me. And I think it's so fascinating because it's such an incredible industry and there is just so much to be developed. And I'm just like, oh, I wish I could just do everything. And I wish my brain like worked that way that I could just (laughs) do all of this. No, but I think that's incredible. And congratulations to how far you guys have come since, you know, early days. Thank you. Yeah, we've exceeded our goals. I mean, we were less than a year old raising bio. And so to have come this far is amazing. Absolutely. How do you see that as well as the nonprofit evolving over time? What are your goals and what do you think is going to happen for both companies in the foreseeable future? Right. You know, first, obviously, I'd love to see Oncosynergy bring OS2966 to broader patients in further clinical trials and, and eventually get approved by FDA. For the nonprofit, I'd love to be able to continue the research. We filed two patents. We've done a lot of work that is really interesting and can be really meaningful. Unfortunately, we don't have the budget to hire more scientists. That would be great. So I'm in the lab every weekend uh, working on that. And then, of course, we're going to help try to scale this in the future with the scholarship programs. 
for Brazen Bio, 10 years down the road, I would have liked to have had my original drug approved, that drug used in a meaningful way through the nonprofit because there's, I believe the, the way forward in glioblastoma is to do combination therapies. That's a lot of what we're doing at the nonprofit on the research level. And so I'd love to see that combination therapy materialize. And then for Brazen Bio, you know, I want to have launched a thousand companies. That's amazing. And the companies that you're launching, do you feel that they're not all brain focused, are they? No. Okay. They're anything that will impact human health, devices, therapeutics, diagnostics, as well as sort of wellness plays, preventative things that might not be regulated. Are there any ideas that you have in the pipeline that you can share or something you're super excited about or something that you've always wanted to create? Yeah, I mean, like if we had a billion dollars, right? I've known what I'd do with it for the past six years because as as I mentioned previously, I believe the way forward in having a real impact in glioblastoma is using these combination immunotherapies, multiple drug approaches. So you need the immunotherapy. I believe we need the drug I developed as well as another immunotherapy. And in, in, in the combination, it's going to take a lot of optimization, but I believe that will create enough synergy to teach the body's own immune system to learn that glioblastoma cells are bad and eliminate it. Now, as I mentioned, those drugs all exist already. It's just a matter of one drug is owned by Big Pharma A, the other drug is owned by Big Biotech B, and the other drug is one I developed. And they don't play nicely. We tried. <laughs> we tried. There are business reasons why it can't happen right now, but if obviously we had endless amounts of cash, we could just push it through. And right. I think we'd see pretty striking results pretty fast. Do you have any you know, inkling as to why all of the very large companies won't work together? Well, I mean, it comes down to money, of course, and sort of, I've learned a lot in pitching these companies. You know, a lot of them are interested in the drug because we meet with their business development folks and they're all excited because this is brand new drug, which is exciting for them because it means something they can market, then they bring it to the scientists. And if there's no scientists who actually have studied that actual molecule, it dies right there. Got it. That's one thing. So there needs to be an internal scientific champion, which is a complete crapshoot, not scalable. And the other side is, you know, we don't, the data at scale yet to prove to these companies that this is meaningful. We have publications for sure in animal studies, but they have other agendas. If we talk to the teams that have immunotherapies, they just start stop talking to us and they won't provide the drug. It's difficult. <laughs> right. Anyone who's done clinical trials knows these companies don't like to combine drugs. That was one thing that my nonprofit was going to try to tackle. I think there are other ways of doing it, but right. other than brute force, but <laughs> <laughs> with cash. That is a real problem. It's a lot more nuanced than how I've laid it out, but it's just not possible right now. Right. Well, I appreciate you sharing and hopefully, you know, we'll circle back and have another conversation whenever that is. And hopefully we'll be able to have a different answer and exactly. hopefully different companies will start working together. Yeah, that's super important. And I really hope that, you know, both of our organizations can help move the needle and showcase like why it's sort of needed in society for glioblastoma. So let's, you know, transition over to talking about you. Who have been the biggest inspirations or mentors to you in the brain cancer and biotech industries? The most impactful mentors are my early ones that I mentioned previously, Dr. Sean Grady, Dr. Richard Wynn, and Dr. John Jane. They were all chairman of neurosurgery. John Jane trained both Wynn and Grady 
And in fact, the father of neurosurgery, Harvey Cushing, trained Dr. Jane's mentor. So basically four generations of neurosurgery removed from the father of neurosurgery, which is an amazing lineage. They were amazing. The, the most important thing I learned from that was just what I sort of laid out previously is I purposely didn't study brain cancer as an undergrad and as a grad student because I didn't want to be influenced by the dogma. I wanted to come at it with fresh eyes. I didn't want to be indoctrinated in how the field felt about the things. And so that was very deliberate. I was an outsider and I brought outside perspectives and I believe that's why I discovered the drug I did and have sort of the, the process that I have. And that's sort of the reason for my success. That can be traced back to Dr. Grady, my closest mentor. Of course, I also love John Bookvar. I've actually known him since he was an intern at uh, UPenn. In fact, Dr. Grady trained him. <laughs> nice. UPenn. So it's a sort of a tight-knit circle. And I can still remember, you know, when I was interviewing at Cornell, when Dr. Bookvar was, was still at Cornell, we had our interview and it was, it was, we knew each other. So like, what do we talk about? <laughs> it was really funny, but great to see how far he's gone and obviously brought a lot of attention to glioblastoma through Lennox Hill on Netflix, which is amazing. And we're very fortunate to have him on our senior fellowship board. And of course, I have to give a shout out again to Keith Black, my former chairman at Cedars-Sinai, who supported me. Amazing. And Dr. Bakhvar. Yes. He's so cool. And he's the best. And he's, he's the man. He's awesome. So Dr. Bakhvar, shout out to you. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're your fans over here. <laughs> exactly. From that, you mentioned you you didn't want to continue studying brain cancer, but your Instagram name and your TikTok name, which I want to transition to, is Brain Surgery Dropout. Why did you pick that name? I definitely <laughs> think it's very catchy, but what made yeah. you choose that? It was sort of personal branding insight back in 2009, right? So <laughs> the real estate bubble just happened and the economic downturn, but it was just right on the heels of sort of the whole Facebook tech sort of wave. And I had just dropped out of neurosurgery residency in order okay. to pursue biotech. And so I, I sort of made that connection. So, it was, so it was, I was trying to come up with a clever name that could be sort of cool branding and came up with brain surgery dropout. You know, again, I'm not saying I'm at that level, but the famous Zuckerbergs, Ellison, Jobs, Gates and Allen, all famous dropouts. I was not as smart as them because I did finish my bachelor's and an MD, and a PhD before I dropped out. So <laughs> <laughs> they're definitely smarter than I am. So that's the origin. And it just stuck. Nice. During COVID, you began blowing up on TikTok. I think a lot of the posts that you did as far as, you know, counting your antibodies and testing them really caused your social media to blow up. But continuously, you've subsequently continued to post about glioblastoma and brain cancer. How do you feel like that? I don't want to say newfound social media following, but you know, like your influencer status, how do you think that's affected the way brain cancer is perceived and, you know, giving information to mass people in society? Absolutely. Again, just shout out to social media. It's, it's how we met. <laughs> it's how our organizations are able to do what we're able to do. It's, you know, it's free distribution, basically. It's amazing. It can it connects the communities. So Instagram is where I started seven years ago, and that was in 2014, and I sort of became the brain cancer guy. This is why Barbie Blank reached out to me, you know, which is fortunate. We started the nonprofit. TikTok was sort of different. They actually approached me through an agency. They saw my Instagram and said, hey, we think you should do this content on TikTok. 
So I tried it. And for better or for worse, I mean, it's, it's a win for sure. But all of my viral videos became viral because of negative comments. Really? <laughs> yeah. So when I first talked about my drug that I invented, people came in in droves, literally thousands of comments about big pharma conspiracies. Wow. Like, first of all, I'm not, I'm not big pharma. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hate. And, you know, so the first video again, that had a million views was me talking about my drug. The only thing people sort of latched onto was the fact, you know, this is big pharma is going to get you and all this stuff. It's, it made no sense. It was kind of funny, but it gave me a platform so that I could try to educate more people. And the same thing actually happened with vaccines. You know, in the lab, developed a new antibody technology. During COVID, we had a test ready that we could use to test for antibodies against COVID. And so I used that test in order to test my own blood at, before and after the vaccine and show that, hey, this vaccine does work. I do have antibodies afterwards, and it's a massive amount. And then again, all the anti-vaxxers came in, and that went super viral because of, of that. Of course, there are people on both sides, but yeah, so the biggest video was 16.6 million views in July of last year for one of the videos. Yeah, so I'm blessed and fortunate to have that platform. I'm still trying to figure out how to provide value through TikTok because it does seem the sort of more controversial things are the things that do the best. And that's not what I'm about. I'm, I'm just trying to educate people. And so it's, I guess it's just about being interesting as a personality. So I'm still figuring it out. But what's amazing is in the comments, there's literally tens of thousands of comments in that one video. You know, some of the comments are like, you know, my grandfather died of glioblastoma, things like that. So we're meeting so many people on, it's a rare cancer to be sure, but we're meeting so many people on social media who have been touched by it. Like I said, it's, it's a great, great way to build the community. I think a good follow-up question to that is if it's considered, you know, quote unquote rare and, but so many people are touched by it. I mean, I feel like since I started that organization that everybody knows somebody that's been affected by it. Do you really think that it's still rare and like even what even constitutes rare, right? Because if you, you have such a large amount of people, which is growing constantly that are diagnosed or that know someone, I mean, who's to really say that it's still rare anymore? Yeah. So it's, it's rare relative to other cancers. That's the definition we're using as far as the rare. So, you know, there's approximately 15,000 new diagnoses every year of glioblastoma compared to, you know, quarter million breast cancer patients. In that view, it is rare. But the, so this goes back to what the power of social media. It's not that the incidence is necessarily going up. It's that we're seeing more of it because of social media is, is sort of lubricating these channels of communication. And so there's more awareness through that, which we're leveraging through both of our organizations. All cancers are horrible. Again, just relative to other cancers, glioblastoma is rare, but we can certainly find the communities online. Right, absolutely. And where do you see the future of glioblastoma going? Do you foresee in the next 10 years, there may be some more developments that are going to help patients? I mean, just because now I feel like only recently in the last few years, it's getting proper attention, even still that's needed in tenfold, but it's getting more attention than it did five years ago when I started the nonprofit because. I did like everyone else does. And you Google, what is GBM, right? And so I think a lot of the awareness factors has come so far, but where do you feel that the, that the cancer and the treatment of cancer and I guess the development of trials and drugs are going in the next couple of years? So we sort of talked about this a little bit already. You know, I believe the immune system will be able to cure all cancers. And so, you know, we're in a wave of 
these new immunotherapies, you know, obviously the checkpoint inhibitors are the won the Nobel Prize in 2018, by the way. So those drugs are very promising. Of course, they don't cure all patients and they tend to only work in certain cancers and not others. 20% cure rate in a cancer is amazing, but obviously there's a lot to go and those drugs so far haven't shown much, much effectiveness in brain cancer. There's other therapies on the horizon, including cell-based therapies like CAR-T, which is very hot right now, particularly for blood cells. It can cure blood cancers. Again, we're actually using the word cure here. And it's because of the immune system, right? So this goes back to what I said before. I believe a combination immunotherapy approach for glioblastoma will be curative. I believe the ingredients that mostly exist today, and it's just a matter of getting big companies to work together and getting the funding together. And that, that's the ultimate dream of my nonprofit is to be able to, to sort of bring that to bear and sponsor a trial with these different players. Just a matter of time, I believe in the next five years, we'll see a lot of breakthroughs with immunotherapies, hopefully with some other approaches that are coming up, as well as the one that I've been a fan of for the past five years. So again, like I've known about this approach for five years and there's, I can't do anything about it. I don't have the funding to do it or the manpower. And so I guess for anyone interested in donating funding or helping your cause, how can people get in touch with you? How can they find you on social media, your website, how can someone, if they wanted to help out the cause? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, central repository is probably my website, which is brainsurgerydropout.com. You can also go to our nonprofit cureglioblastoma.org. You can donate there as well. We do encourage people to use Facebook because there's no fees for donating, but yeah, we'd love your support. Amazing. And so reverting back to the immune system, Non-medical advice-wise, your personal rituals, what do you like to do to keep your immune system healthy? I know you're a huge proponent of sleep. We talked about your aura ring, you know, offline. What do you do in your personal life that you feel helps maintain your immune system and keep you going? Sure. Well, I stepped down from being CEO of Oncosynergy. That was, that was step number one. <laughs> I was so unhealthy in 2019. I mean, Sammy, I was... Really? 170 plus pounds. Oh. I was like, I don't remember. <laughs> One seventy. So I mean, most people wouldn't be able to tell, but you know, I, I lost. I've lost thirty five pounds since then. So I have a daily exercise routine. As I mentioned, I've been optimizing my sleep with the help of a device called the Aura Ring for the past three years. I would also love to do a study with Aura Ring. In we should get them to sponsor. <laughs> I have the contact. It's just the sort of the manpower to get that going. But right for sure, I'd love to see patients send it rings. over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have the contact, and they have. Amazing. They just upgraded to a new generation of rings. So they, they're getting a lot of donations of older that. rings so that we can give them to patients. But, but yeah, so. Healthy habits, right. <laughs> so getting back to sleep, I only got four hours last night because I had a deadline. But optimizing my sleep for the past three years, I intermittently fast. And I'm, I'm always looking for ways to stay healthy. I try to eat clean, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of basic stuff. You know, I don't do supplements. I don't do a lot of weird things. I do intermittently fast. Like I said, I, I don't eat for 16 to 20 hours a day, but it's really just maintaining, maintaining those good habits, which is the difficult thing, of course, over time. Nice. And one last question, and I think you may have answered this, but I want to go like bigger and grander, I like limitless. Like I want to, no borders here. If you can conceptualize any device, technology, trial, or method without any financial or logistical restraint for any of your projects, what would it be? Yeah. So 
it goes back to what we just talked about. Yeah, it would be this combination immunotherapy. Then at least we could use the money to buy the drugs outright from the companies. They don't have to partner with us. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can just make the, do the combination in a trial and we can sponsor that trial. That's literally what I, if someone gave me a large amount of money, that's literally what I would do. And I think that would have a huge impact, not just for brain cancer, because that's a proof of concept for all cancers, right? If it works in brain cancer, it's going to work in other cancers too, because brain cancer is so difficult. So that's the first thing I do. And there's going to be some optimization around that. But literally, I've, I've given this answer three times. And it's, it hasn't, like I said, this is an idea I've had for five years. And this is where I put the money. I think it would have massive returns for patients. Awesome. Well, I, I hope someone's listening that is going to hop on the roller coaster and join along for the ride. <laughs> Let's do it. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've enjoyed our conversation. So excited to you know continue working with you on our nonprofit side and seeing where you continue to develop your biotech companies and Brazen and just continuing to see where your drug goes. So thank you so much again for joining and looking forward to next time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Amber. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org, where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.